This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Sky Blues Extra. Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Sky Blues Extra podcast with me, Tom Ward. And I'm joined this evening by the familiar voice of David Moore and the even more familiar voice of Stuart Linnell. Stuart started his broadcasting career at BBC Radio Birmingham before spending six years at Radio Hallam in Sheffield. Since then, he's been heavily involved with the Sky Blues, covering them on Mercia and CWR over the years. Good evening, Stuart. And thanks for taking the time to come on the Sky Blues Extra podcast. And thank you very much indeed for inviting me on. Very good of you to, to do that. Yeah, no, it's, it's good to have you on, Stuart. Um, just wanted to kick off by just saying uh, congratulations on becoming a grandfather. Um, <laughs> obviously in a world without a huge amount of positive news at the moment, that must have been uh, some welcome news for you. Yes, welcome news. She's a lovely little girl. Um, beautiful. Obviously, as far as I'm concerned, the most beautiful baby in the world. Um <laughs> A little bit of, uh, you know, early instances where things haven't quite gone according to plan after maternity, but all is settling down now. So, yeah, it, it, we're really, really thrilled. Good to hear. And another, another Sky Blues fan in the world or? Naturally. The, elsewhere? The, the Sky Blues kit was born, was, was born, was, was bought long before she was born, I can tell you. <laughs> Brilliant. We, that's what we like to hear. Um, and obviously we've heard your voice for a number of years on the radio, we've listened to hundreds of your phone-ins, but you know, we thought it'd be good for our listeners just to find out a bit more about your journey and your career. Um, so we thought it'd be good to go right back to the start. Um, Stuart, you're born in Birmingham. Um, tell us a bit about your upbringing. Yes, born, I think I'm right in saying, 39 miles away from Coventry. Um, born in a part of Birmingham uh, around Northfield, near to what was then the Longbridge Car Factory. Okay. Um, and uh, brought, born to um, a, a captain from the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. My father was uh, just out of the army. Um, and uh, he and my mum lived near to both my grandparents, actually. And it was my two granddads who was as big an influence on me as anything in, in my early years. They were two, in their very different ways, remarkable men. One was a... My dad's dad was something of a war hero from the First World War. Okay. He'd fought at Passchendaele and he'd got the, he won the military cross there. Uh, thankfully, unlike thousands of others, he survived and came home and he became the chairman of the South African War Veterans Association oh, wow. uh, because he served in, in, the, in the Boer War before that. Um, and uh, the, the other granddad, um, my mum's dad, we lived a quite extraordinary life, which I'm only just beginning to get to grips with as I sort of look into the family history. I mean, he spent some time as a young or oh, late teenager, actually, in, in, in Russia, teaching ice dancing, would you believe, to the oh, children wow. of Tsar Nicholas, um, one of whom, one of those children had uh, haemophilia, therefore couldn't 
do anything like ice dancing because if he bruised himself, he could bleed to death, quite literally. Um, and so that child was looked after and mentored by Rasputin. So it's quite possible that my granddad knew Rasputin, believe wow. it or not. Um, came back home and did various things, including looking after the sourcing feed for horses in the army. Um, eventually ended up, again, bizarre twist completely in his career, running a pub in in Burslem, uh, in, in the Potteries, uh, which is where my mum was born. So if anything, I guess my football affiliations, if you trace that back, might be to Port Vale, really. Yeah, I was going to um, say Port Vale, yeah. Because <laughs> the pub he ran was not far away from their ground, from Vale Park. Uh, and then later, he, um, as I say, was brought up and, um, and um, I was born very much near the Longbridge Car Factory. He ran one of the first car transporter companies, taking the cars from the factory to the dealers and to their eventual owners. Um, so two remarkable men, my granddad's really. And my dad was um, into sport, but not football. He was a rugby referee. Okay. in the rugby season and the cricket umpire in the cricket season. I mean, he, he worked in insurance, but those were his two main sports. And I spent a lot of my time following him in both rugby and cricket. Brilliant. And obviously you said, you know, he wasn't into football. How did you, I guess, get interested in football or, or how did you get into sort of broadcasting with, within football? Or was it just a lot of different sports to start with? I, I followed lots of different sports. I mean, cricket has always been my main love, first love. I played a lot of cricket as a youngster and um, and I watch it avidly now. Um, but football was something that, obviously, all all the lads were keen on football, there was, as is the case today. More play football than play rugby. Yeah. Although maybe some of my rugby friends might, might argue with me, but <laughs> I think that's the case. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, it was the footballers that made the headlines, made the back page of the newspapers. And newspapers in those days were what you got your news from. You didn't read it online. You actually read it off the printed page. Um, and, uh, you know, the days of, I guess, as I grew up watching people or hearing about people like Jeff Fowden at Birmingham City, um, Jerry Hitchens at Aston Villa, uh, and so on. And, uh, and, and it was news of those footballers. And the other thing about football as well, my mum's, sorry, my dad's dad, my granddad, Charles, the, the, the guy that, that won the military cross, uh, did the football pools. Well, they both did. But I sat okay. with him quite often on a Saturday evening, tuning into, in those days, the light programme that became Radio 2. Um, but it's a light programme then with Sports Report. They covered the football and the sport on yeah, a Saturday afternoon. And I sat next to him listening to the football report, the football results being read out. And just being a, not having any clue about where these places were, but hearing <laughs> names like Crew Alexandra, Hamilton yeah. Academicals, Port Vale, indeed, all these wonderful names, Plymouth Argyle, hadn't got a clue where they were, but but that was quite a romantic world for me to to lock into and be, be part of, checking the football coupon with him. Yeah, absolutely. And in your sort of, I guess, as a kid, and then also in your early career, did you did you actually follow a specific team or? would you tend to just sort of follow the teams that you were broadcasting on? Uh, I, I guess when I started broadcasting, I, I didn't really have a choice. It was wherever I was sent to. And yeah. when I started to cover football for BBC Radio Birmingham, as it was then called, it's now BBC WM, um, I was sent to start with mainly to watch Walsall play at their old fellows park ground. And occasionally I was allowed to cover West Bromwich Albion. But more often than not, it was Walsall that I, that I was sent to report on. But always keeping an eye on the, the team down the A45 that was uh, under the, the the keen eye when I first started to be aware of them, of Jimmy Hill. And you mentioned, Stuart, about your sort of time at Radio Hallam. You commented on a range of sports there, didn't you? Yeah, we did. I mean, I was I was very fortunate. I, became, I was the first sports editor at Radio Hallam. We, we went on the air in 1974. Um, and obviously we had six football teams to cover, Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, Rotherham, Chesterfield, Barnsley, Doncaster Rovers. Um, so we had to cover all of them, but also Sheffield Speedway, um, Sheffield Tigers Rugby, although they weren't really in the top flight of rugby union. Yorkshire Cricket, of course, with, with the boycott phenomenon high on the agenda because he went through all sorts of um, troubles and tribulations with, with Yorkshire about whether he should be the captain or not at the time. Sure. Um, and th th that was quite something to, to pursue. In fact, before Hallam went on the air, um, I was we went on the air in the October and I was I went up to Sheffield in August 
And just about that time, um, there was a big story breaking in Leeds. Right. And there was no commercial radio station in Leeds. So we had a phone call from the National News Service that covered commercial radio to our news editor, um, Ian Rufus, who was an old friend of mine from Birmingham. He recruited me to Hallam. And he said, do you want to do this? Because you've got nothing else to do <laughs> apart from setting up um, our stuff and you could spare the time. They're looking for somebody to go and cover it, just to cover this story in Leeds. I said, what's it all about? He said, well, they've appointed this guy, Brian Clough, as their manager. And he's lasted 40-odd days and they've sacked him. <laughs> and they want somebody to go and interview him. So um, I gaily set off up the M1 thinking I'm going to interview Brian Clough. Nothing of the sort happened. I met, got, got to know many of the Yorkshire press crew um, who all did know Brian Clough and knew him well enough, and they didn't tell me where he was, to know how to find him later. But I went up there, went to Ellen Road, crowd of people round about, quite extraordinary day, interviewing some of the fans and stuff to send back to London. And I went off to the, somebody said, the players have gone to the Dragonara Hotel in Leeds. So I went there, and there I found um, Duncan McKenzie. Right, yeah. Uh, who was prepared to sit and talk his head off, yeah. uh, Duncan. And he and he gave me the full SP as he saw the story of what had happened to the Leeds players, because he was a fairly new arrival that Clough had brought in, of course. Um, yeah. So that was quite a baptism of covering sport in Yorkshire for me before Hallam even began. And and with that, you mentioned from Speedway to, you know, um, the rugby and, and, and the football do you sort of have to sort of try and pick those different sort of sports up as you go along or, you know, do you have to really study the sort of ins and outs? Because, you know, they're, they're very different. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the key to commentating, um, whether you're on radio, television or where you are, is to describe what you can see. Yeah. That's, that's the critical thing. Now, obviously, knowing what the game is about, knowing why this person in black on the touchline has raised a flag and all the rest of it is obviously important. You've got to know the rules of the game. Um, but yes, I, I mean, I, when, when I first began, I, I thought I knew all there is to know about sport, but I thought, well, I better be certain. <laughs> and somewhere, and in fact, I've, I've been sorting them out the other day because we've had a room decorated at home and I've suddenly found these books. Um, and the, a series of books called Know the Game, which basically told you the, the basic laws of the various sports. I mean, a lot of them are way out of date now. Um, but yeah, so, so you, you know, you'd, you'd study that to make sure you got the rudiments and you, if, if you didn't already understand it, you knew what was going wrong, how the point system worked in Speedway, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and all of that. And and then, yes, was, once you've got that in your head, it's then a question of describing what you can see. So to that degree, you do have to do a little bit on the fly, really. And obviously, many sports. Was there one that was a favourite of yours to commentate on? I suppose from a professional point of view, I have to say football, because that there was so much of it in my life and... It was where, if I'm brutally honest and frank, that's where the business was. That's where, yeah. the, where, you made your, where you made your money and you earned your living by covering football more than the other sports. My personal favourite sport, as I say, the game I played a lot. Um, I did play football a bit, but the game I played a lot and I've always followed is, was cricket. My, cricket. my granddad, yeah. the one I mentioned, uh, my father's father, when I was, um, before I was a teenager actually, bought me a junior membership of Warwickshire uh, right. to go and watch them with Edgbaston. I used to go and sit alongside him to watch. Uh, Tom Cartwright, who was Coventry-born, of course, bowling yeah. for Warwickshire. Um, so, so cr cricket's always been, in a way, my first love as a sport to, to naturally gravitate towards. But, but football's been the sport that has always occupied, well, has occupied most of my professional life, really. And you were a part of the team during Mercia Sound in, in Coventry. How did that come about when that launched? Well, Ian Rufus, as I say, I'd, I'd known Ian at Radio Birmingham. He'd gone off... Um, to join the brand new, then brand new uh, LBC, which in those days was a London station. These days, of course, it's a national station. Yeah. It was a London station um, when it launched just before um, BRMB launched in Birmingham. And I'd applied for the job, cheekily, having worked a bit at Radio Birmingham, of sports editor at BRMB. Um, but they very sensibly employed another guy you may have heard of called Tony Butler. Okay. And he, he became the legendary sports editor of BRMB, but he knew I'd gone for that. And when he, uh, he phoned me out the blue in 1974 and he said, um, uh, I know you're interested in getting a job, a full-time job in radio, because at this time I was doing something else and, and working in radio part-time. Right, okay. And he said, would you like to come and be the sports editor at Radio Hallam in Sheffield? And um, before he could, I could put the phone down, I was on the train to him. 
Um, Brilliant. I was so keen to go and do it. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's how it began. Ian invited me to go to Alham uh, to, to join him there. And then later, uh, he left to come to Coventry to be the programme controller of this new station, Mercia Sound. And again, he picked the phone up to me and said, uh, I know you're settled in Sheffield, which I was very, very settled. Um, but how would you fancy making another change? We're launching a new station. And yep, I, I went and joined him there as, again, sports editor to start with, but also presenting an afternoon show every day. We had Rob Gurney on the podcast, as you know, Stuart, and he was very complimentary towards you um, in sort of helping his career to, to get started. Tell us a bit about your relationship with Rob and, and how that formed. Well, Rob arrived at Mercia as a very, very keen 16-year-old, um, anxious to just be involved. And uh, we immediately identified his enthusiasm as something we wanted to grab hold of if we could, if he was really serious, and he clearly was. Um, and, uh, well, Rob's progress has been remarkable, and I, w- I would not by in any way, shape or form lay claim to being the only mentor Rob had because there was people like Peter Lowe, Mm. who was a senior reporter at Mercia at one point, then became news editor. These days, um, he's been ed- news editor at Sky Sports, uh, not Sky Sports, Sky News, I should yes. say. Yes, yeah. Um, and um, so he spent a lot of time mentoring Rob in the Mercia newsroom when Rob joined us on a full-time basis. But but a young Rob, of course, uh, and I think he probably mentioned this to you on his interview with you, um, you can see behind the goal at Wembley, yeah. <laughs> cheering his head off when one of the goals goes in, sitting amongst the photographers, yeah, and we found him a space so that he was he was with us and part of the team and he sat behind the goal, um, very well behaved until until that moment and there he is with both arms aloft, cheering the cheering the sky blues putting the ball in the back of the net against Tottenham, yeah. but but I've always got on well with Rob he's a a lovely lovely guy um, and present company accepted I'm sorry to say this for anybody that might be offended by it but I will say it I think without any shadow of a doubt the best Coventry City commentator that we've had in local radio in Coventry. Um, he loves the Sky Blues. He, he knew, knows the club inside out, back to front. His knowledge of statistics way, way better than mine to do with the Sky Blues. I think he did, when he was talking to you, reel off facts, figures, dates and times and all the rest of it <laughs> yeah. at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Um, and he's imbued in Coventry City in a way like nobody else I've known. He, he I think, felt that he needed to um, get more experience, so he moved across the West Midlands to Radio WM and has been commentating on other teams since. But, um, I, I, well, you know, Rob, for me, was, was number one, um, far yeah. better than I ever was and far better than I think anybody else has been in terms of commentating on the Sky Blues. Yeah, he's definitely created some um, some iconic sort of commentary memories, hasn't he? <laughs> that will, I don't think people will forget for a while. No, indeed. Absolutely right. Um, and in terms of at Mercia, um, was your, I presume you were covering Sky Blues right from the start. Is that right, Stuart? Yes, that's right. We went on the air at the end of May so we, in 1980. So we missed the 79-80 season. So our first match was um, start of 80-81, which if I remember rightly was um, a match at Birmingham, which I think um, I think we lost 1-0 if I'm, if I'm right. Rob would certainly tell me straight away. <laughs> Um, but ironically, bearing in mind what's going on these days, yeah, that was, was the say. first game we covered was at St Andrews. Yeah, I was going to say, little did you know that a few, you know, a few years ahead that we'd be playing there. But yeah, yeah there you go. Good. And so, did you did you commentate on that game then, Stuart? Yeah, yeah. In those those early days, I did the the, the match commentaries from from the ground um, uh, quite often. I mean, there were quite a few weekends where I would be in the studio. And Rob or whoever would be covering the Sky Blues, and then I would do the midweek matches. But as, as often as I could, I got out to do the games. Yes, you're listening to Sky Blues Extra. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and imagine one of your career highlights was the um, the '87 Cup final, which you just mentioned. Um, I, I guess just talking about the the, the cup run, really. Um, what do you remember from sort of the early rounds, and, and I guess from a broadcaster's point of view? I remember um, seeing us win those early games and thinking, well, this could be interesting. Um, <laughs> I, I remember the, the match at Stoke. I think, am I right in think, saying Michael Jinn scored the goal there? I think so, yeah. I think that's right. And, and, and what I remember that particularly because one of my commentary um, bloopers was that day because as the goal went in, I looked down on the bench and I saw Snoz 
leaping off the bench. And I said, the bald head of John Sillett leaps off the bench. Now, naturally, the rest of John Sillett followed his bald head. But, but that's what I said. And somebody, somebody very clever in Stoke Green, I think it was, um, wrote that down, sent it off to Private Eye for their Coleman Balls series and got themselves 50 quid for sending that in. So oh, wow. I helped that person to win a prize. But yeah, th th those early rounds. And I do remember very much the match at Old Trafford um, yeah. against Manchester United. Um, and I don't think anybody really gave us a prayer when we went there. And yet we won the game. And the Manchester United fans, almost on the final whistle, they were gone, disappeared. Our fans were kept back, as the police used to do, and I think probably still do some, in some instances yeah. these days. They kept them back for their own safety, I suppose. Not that I think there's any reason to, because I think the United fans just gone home fed up and disgruntled. <laughs> but they kept them back. And it was as if suddenly it dawned on them what we'd done, because they'd mm. been supporting the club in the usual way that the Sky Blue Army, as we know them these days, do, with tremendous vocal support. But suddenly the final whistle... The cheering and the euphoria and the scarf waving and all of that just burst out. And they, and they sang the Sky Blue song over and over again <laughs> till, till their, their voices must have been absolutely sore and worn out. And they must have been so hoarse. But it was, I think it was at that point we thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe this could be something. We've just come to Old Trafford and beaten Manchester United. Yeah. Doesn't that tell you something about this team? But even then... You know, you still think, well, it's still a, you know, still a bit of a way to go. Yeah. But that, that was that was a key moment, um, I think, along along the route in those in those first few rounds. Yeah, because I think that was the fourth round, wasn't it? Man, Man United yeah. away, and then because we had Dave Bennett on a few weeks ago, and he was saying that um, obviously it's great to beat Man United, but then Stoke away was a really tough game. Cause I think they were yeah. in the league below, but I think they were doing really well at the time, um, and that was that was a big result as well. So. Yeah, no, it's interesting to hear different people's perspective on on when they sort of had that feeling that it might be our year. Yeah, and I, I, th I think the real the real turning point though, you know, came in the uh, in the match against Leeds at Hillsborough. Mm. Um, because the first half we were appalling; we just didn't turn up. We were dreadful. Yeah. Second half we turned it on, and it were a, we were a different team. And we didn't know this. We were up in the press box, obviously covering the game. But the story that has been told to us now, Snoz has told me, George Curtis has told me, um, and Lloyd McGrath himself has told me when I've pushed him on it. He's not the, he doesn't push himself forward that much, Lloyd, <laughs> but if you ask him the question, he'll tell you the story. Um, Snoz and George and, you know, whoever had said what they wanted to say, and there was still, there was nothing more to say. They, they thought they were going out, and what could we do to lift the lads? And they, they were just looking around for something. And they just opened the dressing room door to file out. And before they did, Lloyd, who'd been sitting there by himself, as he does quietly, but near the door, just started to sing, here we go, here we go, here we go. And the rest of them picked it up until apparently the whole squad, and probably Snoz and George as well, were singing this to their heart's content. And I've been told by somebody because I used to obviously work at Hallam, so I know some of the people at Hillsborough, somebody told me, um, nothing to do with Coventry City, that they'd walked past and the Leeds dressing room door had opened and they were just about to come out full of the joys of doing well against us and they froze. They just stopped <laughs> and said, and looked around and said, what the heck is that? And, and, and I think that was, that was the thing that really set us on our way, to be quite honest. Yeah, and it, it set us on our way and we finally reached the final. Um, I think everyone has a different story, but it would be great to hear your sort of build up from the start of the day, really, and what it was like from a broadcasting point of view. I saw recently that pe you know people said the FA Cup was on, on the weekend and it's a very different now. You know, you used to have to film in and the, the, the sort of the day would start very much a lot earlier and you'd have the players eating their breakfast or, you know, early pro uh, sort of press conferences. But yeah, talk us through the day from from your sort of point of view. I will uh, just to say that I think it, I agree totally. I think it's an awful shame that we don't have that we've allowed that competition, which even around the world today in other countries people will still tell you what how you know what the FA Cup is is, is special and it is yeah. special. And, we've and just certain allowed fixtures it to where they were at that time. Yeah, we've allowed it to become devalued, de sadly. And and I saw somebody on Twitter saying, "Come on, BBC, we want." 
the, as it used to be in a three o'clock kickoff. I'm afraid these things are out the hands of the BBC these days. It's all yeah, down to sponsors, and there are other TV companies covering it as well. But yes, I, I agree totally. We should be there in the in the days where three o'clock kickoff. You know, you're watching it from breakfast time till till afterwards, and then the, the the banquet is on match of the day at the end. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> as as for eighty seven, um, we'd stayed overnight in London, and the plan was that um, the commentary team, Mike Liggins, was by now our sports editor at Mercia, and Mike and um, the commentary team would obviously go and set up in, in at Wembley and get ready to start the coverage at whatever time it was, one o'clock, two o'clock. And, and I went out, I don't know whether you remember a guy called Tom Wadrop. Okay. But Tom used to be um, a stadium announcer at Highfield Road. Um, right. Sadly, we, we lost Tom 12 months or so ago, but he's a lovely man. And he, and, and he also did some work for us, reading football results and stuff on, on Mercia. And Tom was with me and um, we were put in a hotel in London and and we the plan was we'd take the radio car out to uh, the complete angler at Marlow, which is where the team was staying. Right. And where I actually I didn't go to the complete angler, but I stayed in Marlow not long ago, and I saw the hotel. And it was brought back all these memories. I can imagine. And, and we went out there at breakfast time, and the idea was we'd try and meet them and perhaps interview one or two of them before they set off. Um, hardly any of them showed up at breakfast time. I, I sat with Dave Phillips, and I think um, now who else was there? Was somebody else? Um, Lloyd may have come down. I don't know. I've learned since that one of the reasons why none of them showed up was because Snoz and George had sanctioned somebody to go out to the off-license overnight. <laughs> <laughs> and there were a few lagers drunk in bedrooms, I have to say, yeah. um, by, by, the, by the players and perhaps other county for we've, a late We've start. certainly heard stories that would match that uh, yeah. description of events. Yeah. So, so I went in there and I had a chat with them. I had some breakfast with them. And then uh, we, we, we came out to see them... Be- slowly gathering, coming together. And then there was a bit of a, bit of a kerfuffle because Snoz had discovered there was a, a wedding taking place. And he decided it would be good luck if his captain, i.e. Brian Kilcline, kissed the bride's garter, which was, you know, a bit chancy to say the least, if you know Killer. But it also had to be a sky blue garter. So they found a, somehow a sky blue garter and they gave it to her and she gamely put it on with her husband standing holding her beside her, beside him tightly, this 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 strange footballer with long hair did something silly, and there's a photograph, obviously, as you, probably a lot of people have seen, of, of Killer on his knees kissing the bride's garter. Mike Liggins, along the way interviewing people, got chucked in the River Thames, which flows alongside the hotel. He, he must have been aware that was going to happen because he was then later at Wembley in a completely dry change of clothes. Um, but that was um, he set off long before we did um, anyway eventually the time came for them to leave the complete angler sure. and so we duly watched them and described it back to the, the audience in Coventry getting on board the coach the kit being loaded on and everybody being ready to set off and we told the driver what we were going to do a guy we knew from Harry Shaw Travel um, we were going to go ahead of the coach and, and describe its, its journey up from time to time on, on the air. Of course. Um, we set off and we got to the entrance of the Complete Angler and Tom was said, they're not behind us. I said, what do you mean they're not behind us? They're in the grounds of the hotel. No, he said, no, they're, they're, they're not behind us. And what had happened was, the co- well, turned around, there was the coach going round and round this sort of traffic island affair that they've got in the middle of the courtyard of the Complete Angler. And what had happened was that Snoz had seen a magpie and Snoz is one of the most superstitious people in the world. And he was going nowhere until they saw a second magpie. One for sorrow, two for joy. He saw the second magpie and he said, right, we can go now. And so we had to wait for that to take place. And then we're scooting off down the, 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 the motorway to, between Marlow and, and Wembley. Um, and George Curtis is at the front of the coach, waving at us to get a move on. We were obeying the speed limit. I mean, we couldn't go any quicker to be legal. and We weren't going to break the law. If the coach wanted to overtake us, it could. But the driver was just laughing his head off with George standing beside him, gesticulating at us that we were, we were in the way. So anyway, we get to Wembley. Um, the, the, the bus obviously goes its way into um, the, these days, of course, and those days underneath the Twin Towers into the dressing yeah. room to area where the players could get off. We went and parked the radio car. Tom parked the radio car in a place that had been allocated for us just off Wembley Way next to the stadium. And as we're parking the car, this big uh, Daimler parks alongside us. 
and outsteps this chap who I recognised immediately, and he was wearing a Tottenham tie, and it was Captain Mark Phillips, who in those right. days was married to Princess Anne. So I thought, well, you're not going to get this chance very often. So I said, um, you're looking forward to the match, sir? And he said, uh, he said, yes, I am. Always look forward to this. We never lose here, you know. So I said, well, there's always a first time. And he just looked at me and went and grunted and said, well, maybe. <laughs> and they walked off. <laughs> and then we made our way to the ground, Tom and I, and, uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, of course. And the, it, it was history. And, and it's one that, you know, we we very much fondly look look at a lot of, you know, a lot on the podcast. And um, we talked to, to Dave Bennett about the celebrations after, um, you know, after the, the, the Cup. What was the celebrations like for, for you guys sort of in the radio station? And, and was it sort of work was still not done, I can imagine? Well, work was definitely still not done. And in fact, um, we wanted to, um, again, I was with, with Tom and I think there was somebody else with us. I forget who it was and joined us at this point to come back to Coventry in the vehicle with us. But I said, well, look, let, we, we won't go until we know they've gone. The players were still there and, 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 and all that. And, and what had happened was that, and again, you may well have heard this before, um, Snoz and, and, and George had said, we're not going to have the TV cameras interfere with our celebrations. We want yeah. this. We don't want anybody joining in. This is our party, not theirs. We're going off to this hotel in rugby and that's where we're going to be. Um, Jimmy Hill, of course, was presenting Match of the Day. Yeah. And the word came down from the BBC studios, would they please just have a chat with Jimmy Hill because it was him and only because it was him and what he meant to Snoz and to George, they both said, yes, okay, we will. And Jimmy came across to them and said, okay, I understand you don't want us at your banquet, which I think is a shame, but that's fair enough. That's your prerogative. Would you do an interview with me and the squad? Could we bring you into the TV room at Wembley? And so they did that. Yeah. And we, we waited for them to, to, be, to be interviewed. And uh, uh, we watched from a distance while that went on. Uh, until eventually they, they got on board the coach. And so we we were the last people from Coventry, so far as I'm aware, to leave Wembley that night. We waited to see the team out. We described it on the air back to Coventry that they were now on their way home with the FA Cup. And then we made our way back up the motorway, up the M1. And even at the first bridge, which is obviously not far out of London at all, sky blue flags. People yeah. have been watching this on television. And John Watson, of course, had said, this is the best cup final, one of the best cup finals I've ever seen, or words to that effect. And clearly people had enjoyed watching it. And yeah. all the way up the motorway, there were sky blue flags, sky blue scarves everywhere. Until we get into Coventry and we come off to go down um, uh, off, off the M M6, of course, uh, down past the hospital eventually. But before we got to that point, uh, we went past what is now the, um, I think it's a Holiday Inn Hotel, isn't it? And then there's Asda these days. But there was a pub just ahead of that. And people were all over the road. You had to slow right down, otherwise you'd knock them over. Yeah. Um, they were coming out of the pub with sky blue beer <laughs> and, and, and celebrating in the street. And they saw us and recognised the Mercia thing and they started banging on the car and cheering. And we had the car radio by this time, of course. We'd be back in the area. We're tuned into Mercia. And I forget who was on the air, but um, I picked the phone up and said, you're playing the Sky Blue song, the um, Go For It City, sorry, the Go For It City anthem, the yeah. cup anthem. And he said, yeah. I said, keep playing it, because every time you play it, they're out there singing it. Um, and so every two or three records, they would play Go For It City. Oh, uh, and people just, just really in, enjoyed the moment. It was a huge celebration that lasted right through the weekend. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. 
there's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And moving on just in, in your own sort of um, time and, and career, uh, am I right in thinking you, you did a bit of a stint as the stadium announcer at Highfield Road? I did, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd left um, Mercia, went through a number of takeovers. I became managing director at one point and... and um, the, the radio station went through a number of changes and I, I stayed on board for some little time through them, three or four changes, I think, actually, of ownership um, until eventually the point came where um, I was edged out, I suppose. There was no... They were very good to me. I mean, they sure. looked after me very well. But um, I, I was looking around for something else. And while I was looking around for something else, I was approached by the football club to say, we'd like to just vary the way we do things on a Saturday. Yeah. Uh, Jim Twynham was by now the stadium announcer. Again, somebody who sadly we lost not too long ago. Um, with his incredible deep voice, very identifiable voice. Um, but we just want to change things a bit. We, we, Jim's in the DJ box making the usual announcements. Would you do the introduction of the team on the pitch? And that developed into doing quizzes in the hospitality lounge around the boardroom and in the boardroom itself. Right. Um, and uh, there were many, many moments I can tell you about in, in those days as well, meeting <laughs> other managers and people. And I, so I was, because I used to wait outside the dressing room to get the teams from the referee as soon as they'd been delivered to him. Right. And um, there was one particular occasion, for example, when um, I think it must have been Sheffield United, I can't remember precisely. Anyway, Neil Warnock was managing the team in question. I think it was Sheffield United. Yeah. And. Um, I looked down their team sheet and he was standing next to me looking over my shoulder at Coventry's team. And I said, I can see on this team sheet, Neil, you don't appear to have a, a goalkeeper on the substitutes bench. And I won't use the language he used. I will bleep it, if you like. But he said, that's for me to bleeping know and for you to bleeping well find out. So um, I looked at him and uh, sort of shrugged my shoulders. and said, thank you very much. Anyway, I'm then walking off and he came back and tapped me on the shoulder. He said, it's all right, son, not for you. The referee was around the corner. I didn't want him to think I was getting away with anything. Uh, he, he was a nice man, Neil, but he, he wasn't going to let me get away with, with um, just pointing things out to him when he didn't want it. But no, no that, that was in, a fun time. I enjoyed that greatly. As, as the uh, And of course, the, the best day of all, being the stadium announcer, sadly the best day, though I regret it as many fans do, was the day that Highfield Road played its last, the club played their last match at Highfield Road because oh, that was really? such a special, special day. Yeah. Sad, sad that we had to leave, but we, we made a great day of it and the team, of course, played their part hugely. Yeah, and like you say, that's um, a very, very fond memory. Highfield Road for you, what, why, why was it so special, do you think, for, as, as a football ground? I'm going to use an old cliche, which so many people have used since. It was a proper football ground. It was a yeah. proper ground. It was, a, it was steeped in history. Um, you know, my father-in-law used to tell me about watching George Hudson play the HUD. He loved the HUD. Um, he saw him score this goal where he flicked the ball over the centre half, turned around, it was still in the air, landed on his foot, and he followed it in. Um, he loved George Hudson. And, and, and lots of people have got memories like that, watching on of the cops and so on. Um, it was a proper football ground. The problem was, and uh, people say we should never have moved, and I've got a lot of sympathy with that point of view, a huge amount of sympathy with it. But I know for a fact, talking to various people at the ground and the club at the time, that it needed a huge amount of money being spent on it. Now, people will shake their heads and disagree with me, but I'm afraid it did. It was a, The ground was tired. Yeah. It had one stand with stanchions in the way, restricting the view of a lot of people for a start. Yeah. Uh, so that needed that roof at least needed replacing. Um, we're now in the modern era of all-seater stadiums, and more than that, we're in the era where clubs were beginning to realise that you needed to make money out of your stadium if you could, at least 360 days of the year, if not the whole yes. year. Um, yeah. And there was no way you could do that at Highfield Road, not without doing a huge amount of work. And that work would have included, and this was the problem, would have included getting the local council, the local authority probably on your side to compulsorily purchase businesses and people's homes in the immediate vicinity of the ground. The, the, the Mercer's Arms pub over the road, for example. Yeah, that would have been extend. part of all of that. Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of work, a lot of planning would have had to go into it. It could have been done. 
and it would have they'd have had to find the money from somewhere as well to to literally rebuild the ground sure um, and also provide adequate car parking because that was another major issue which people tend to forget around Highfield Road at the time there was just car parking was wholly inadequate for a, a club in the top flight of English football yeah of course uh, and, and then, then you get to the question of you know well was the Rico a good thing and all the rest of it and where we've gone to since then in a very sad story but uh, yeah I mean I regret hugely that we left Highfield Road but I, I understand why it happened um, I just yeah. wish it could have been different yeah, of course. And I was going to move on, but you've kind of answered that really around the timing of it. It seems that from your your point of view, it was almost forced upon because there was going to be some some drastic repairs and and you know the missing of commerciality for the the days that you mentioned outside of those football weekends. Yeah, I think I think it was it was it was more, yeah, of course paying for the upkeep of the ground and paying for its renovation and improvement and modernization was was part was a major part of it that money had to be found from somewhere but more than that it was actually making the ground contribute income and revenue into the football club that that was one of the key things that had to be done somehow and they could never have done that adequately and made enough money the money they needed to stay in in, in the top flight i mean look what we did we bought Players like Dion Dublin, Robbie yeah. Keane, um, players that cost a lot of money and that money had to be found from somewhere. And I'm afraid what was coming in through the turnstiles, yeah. even if the ground was full every week, and what was coming in through merchandising in those days, it's yeah. quite different now, yeah. but in those days just was not anywhere near enough to really pay away. And like lots of clubs, we're by no means the only one, like lots of clubs, we paid out money we couldn't afford for some of those players, which is why many of them had to move on fairly quickly to bring the money back in again. And if, but if you think of some of the players we saw just before we left Highfield Road, so we didn't fortunate. really know how, how well off we were, did we? We no, didn't really appreciate what we were, how great it was to see some of these guys wearing sky blue shirts. Yeah, the club yeah. recently put out a lot of different videos, didn't they, on the YouTube? And it was just brilliant, wasn't it, to see um, even Gordon Strachan, I think, running around and, and running the show and, you know, Hadji and, and Keane and, and the likes against Arsenal. It was, yeah, we, we really were spoiled. Can you imagine a team, that, that team, Strachan, McAllister, Robbie Keane, Hadji, Shipo, um, not to mention... Our good friends along the way that played for us around that sort of time, Noel Whelan and Darren Huckabee. Yeah. I mean, what what players were they? And and we took them for granted, you know, really. I mean, I know there's the old joke about Darren Huckabee that he, he's never to this day learned or understood what the offside rule's about. But <laughs> um, but, but the, the, the thing was, I don't think that was actually fair, because, although I've cracked the joke many times myself in his face. But the thing about Darren was he was lightning quick. Yeah, you often I'm, I'm sure a lot of the time when he was flagged offside, he actually wasn't flagged offside, yeah. but he just caught the linesman out because he was so fast, really tremendously fast. Yeah, and luckily most of the time he just had to. He was beating men, wasn't he? So he wasn't always having to to be in that sort of off the shoulder. But he was. Um, he really was a, a special, special player. Yeah, absolutely um, right. You're listening to Sky Blues Extra. And you've obviously hosted a lot of phone-ins in your time, Stuart. Um, I think one of the most famous moments has to be the the Dan incident, let's call it, <laughs> after the Crew JPT game. Um, when did you kind of realise that this clip had gone viral? Not until the following day. Um, <laughs> one of one of our colleagues in the newsroom working at um, BBC CWR that evening um, had realised and, and clocked it long before I think anybody else did that A, this was something a bit different, a bit special, but also it related to that um, incident off off the TV show. Um, 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 Alan Partridge. Uh, Alan Partridge, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I should never forget that. Alan Partridge show where he's in the car park yelling, Dan, Dan, Dan. Um, and she had a contact in the, with the Sun newspaper um, and she sold the story to them. Oh, wow. And of course, at the same time, put it up online as well. So within 12, 12 hours, by the time I woke up the following morning anyway, it got all right way around the world and back again. Yeah. Chris Evans was playing it on his breakfast show on Radio 2. He's since played it, I've heard him play it on Virgin since he's moved to them. It's one he keeps on coming back to. And um, and and it's, it's it was just one of those extraordinary things. And Dan, of course, we had on the programme, uh, on the phone, and I think at the, at the end of that week, 
Um, we found him, and he, he he's a bit. He, he was then. I don't know whether he still is. He was then a bingo caller in Radford, <laughs> really? and and he came he came on, and we had a, we had a and he's a lovely guy. And we had a chat with him, and uh, he he and his mates had obviously just taken it upon themselves. Oh, we're not stepping here. We're being beaten, and all the rest of it. We were losing from the first leg anyway, and they got off to the pub to get a drink, and they had no idea that we scored a goal. Never mind, won the match. <laughs> yeah, this such just such a funny moment that was on the radio. I mean, I, I searched your name earlier, just doing a bit of research, and most of the hits you find on Google, they're all around that. It's just, yeah. Yes. Like you said, it really did get worldwide coverage. <laughs> um, and then in, in more recent times, it must have been nice to be involved with CWR for the uh, the two Wembley trips that we've had. Um, yes. Talk us through those, Stuart. Well, I mean, very much, of course, these days, it's Clive Eakin is CWR sports editor. It's very much his his show and his, his programme. And I was... I was invited invited to be part of it because um, largely because I'd been there in '87 and I'd done obviously done some phone-in shows on CWR over the years and so on and, and I was <laughs> delighted to be so I was delighted to host the program um, and um, now we, Wembley had changed hugely I have to yeah. say obviously because we're now we're now under the arch rather than the twin towers um, and uh, in the in the days of '87 um, we were in the in the press box. We were found space at far end of the press box, so the newspaper reporters way down this long, long uh, press box to our left. It was the BBC in their enclosed box in the middle of the press box in those days, and we were at the one end uh, towards the scoreboard at Wembley. Uh, and we had in in '87 we had Kirk Stevens um, play alongside us in the commentary yeah. team. Paul King from the pop group King, who sang Love and Pride. He was he and his agent somehow got in with us as well, and there's a whole host of us. Um, now, for the, and the most recent Wembley trips, it's all very different, very modern, of course. The stadium completely rebuilt, um, and you're given excellent coverage, excellent support, excellent facilities behind a glass screen, which for some of us takes it away. You've got your um, effects microphones outside bringing in the crowd noise, but it's not quite the same if you haven't got the crowd in your face and around your ears as it used to be at the old Wembley and at most football grounds now. Behind being behind glass is a little bit artificial, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, but it, but it was obviously tremendous, and to see that stadium just at the one end of it, a sea of sky blue, absolutely magnificent, wonderful. I mean, obviously people turning out to see them who probably hadn't seen them play in the league that season, um, mm. either season, and 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 but that happened. I mean, it happened in '87. People, quarter of a million people on the streets of Coventry on the Sunday to welcome them back home with the cup. And I mean, most of that quarter of a million had never set foot inside Highfield Road, never mind uh, see the Sky Blues play. But, but it, it was part of the city's pride. And, and I travelled down on both occasions on the train uh, to Wembley and travelled back again. And um, the atmosphere was just tremendous. Yeah, it was fantastic. Especially that um, the first one, the Checker Trade game. So obviously, you know, we were probably at our sort of lowest point we'd been at in our history, really. And then obviously Mark Robbins came in um, and then we had that day where all the fans came out and it felt like a big kind of turning point that then, didn't it, Stuart? It really did. I mean, as you say, we were relegated, yet we won that competition. Um, and Mark, I know, was he felt immensely proud with what, he, what the players had done. But also, I mean, he's told me this, immensely proud of, of what I've just described, the, 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 that sea of sky blue, the fans giving his team the backing that they did that day. And he said he, said he knew that, if you talk to him, he'll tell you he knew that he'd begun to turn things around, or at least the players and the team had begun to turn things around, even though they were being relegated. But that day, seeing that support, he knew mm. that something special could be could be done still with this football club. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, he's done a terrific job over the last three years since he came back. How would you sort of summarise his achievements since since returning as manager? Magnificent. I mean, there's only one manager in the history of the club, and there's some, and there've been some. I know we've had some, one or two managers that people would say we'd, we'd rather have not seen them enter the ground, but we've had some good managers over the years. Um, Noel Cantwell, Gordon Milne, all played their part. For example, um, Bobby Gould. Um, uh, but I think Mark has to be up there alongside Jimmy Hill. Jimmy Hill will always have this special place in the history of Coventry City Football Club. No one can ever take that away. He was the man with his chairman who decided at the time, Derek Robbins, that, 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 that this, this club, with a bit of intelligent thought, thinking out the box, as we'd put it these days, 
a bit of creativity could really go somewhere. You could you could make something of it. That here was a city crying out for success from its football club, and he did what he did. He changed the colour. He, he he wrote the song and and created on the pitch an, an an ethos and an ethic and a team built around a colossus, mind you, in George Curtis, um, but with with some great footballers alongside him too. Um, he he knew that what what he could do and what what Jimmy and Jimmy's quite rightly got a statue in the city, albeit, as we know these days, at a place the fans would rather it was somewhere else, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, he deserves his statue. Yeah, of course. And he deserves the recognition for for what he did. So you can never take that away. But Mark Robbins is not far away yeah. from achieving that sort of legendary status. I mean, I hear talk, as we all do, all the time now, whenever a manager from one of the perhaps with no disrespect to them, lesser clubs like Birmingham City or Bournemouth at the moment, um, decide they're going to change their manager. We hear talk about them coming in for Mark Robbins. And yeah. maybe at some point, maybe by the time this is put out, somebody may have made him an offer he can't refuse. I don't know. Um, but I think it would take a big offer to tempt Mark Robbins yeah. away. Uh, he has said to me and he said to others many times, this is my club. This is my home. This is where, my football home anyway, this is where I want to be for a long time to come. The job isn't done yet. And I think he really believes that. Um, and I think he's right when he says that this season could be a one-off season in the Championship. We'd be in the Premier League next year. I think he really believes that. Yeah, I think it's wow. a big ask. I think it's a huge, huge ask for him to do that in one season. But he's putting together an impressive squad. Yeah, he wants to do it, doesn't he? Absolutely, and and uh, and I think he's not far away. And if he did that, if he took us into the Premier League from from the fourth division, if you like, he would have done yeah. exactly what Jimmy Hill did. Yeah, and then um, he would and, definitely and, have to have a statue, cannot, wouldn't he? You cannot, take, you cannot split the two then. Yeah, absolutely. I saw something on Twitter recently, actually, where um, this sort of debate broke out whether you know who who was the sort of who'd achieved more and um someone put i think it was uh jimmy hill made coventry city and mark robbins saved them which i thought was quite a quite a good way of putting it really yeah yeah that's um, that's an interesting interesting angle i think there's um certainly on the pitch yeah saved them yeah, yeah yeah definitely um and just sort of looking at this season specifically um we obviously played some fantastic football we you know, we, we did so well. What what do you think was the key to, to getting promoted? I know it was obviously a short season, but yeah, what was what was there for you? I think I think that within that squad, there's very much what Snoz and George built, you know, in 87. And I'm sure Jimmy Hill did the same in the 60s. This inner belief that we're all in this together, guys. We are a team of, we are genuinely a team. We are, I know we talk about a squad these days, but we are a team. We all belong to the same club. We're all striving for the same long-term goal. Uh, and I've had the privilege, and it's been a privilege, in the last 12 months uh, hosting the Friday night show, going down on a Friday morning to to Wrighton to interview Mark and a, a player each time. And obviously bumping into um, all the players across across the season. And I've also chaired a, a forum or two for, for the Southern Supporters Club Mm. with um, uh, Jordan Shipley and Max Biamu. Um, and you get to know these guys. And, and I've said this on the radio, and I genuinely mean it. They're really, really nice guys. They're <laughs> yeah. genuinely, genuine people. And they all do want to work for each other and help each other out. And there's no side of them. Of course, if you're, I don't know, um, shippers, let's say, and you're left out of the team on Saturday, you won't be happy. You'll, you'll, you, you, you know, your place has been taken by somebody else. And you'll work hard to get back, but you'll also <clears throat> support the guy that's taken your place and, yeah. and, and give him every encouragement and help him. And that's 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 what's, what Mark Rums has been able to in, in, introduce in them. He's pulled together guys who've got the right character and the right attitude, um, good footballers as well. Mm. Fitness, without any question, has been critical. I think getting them as fit as they've been has been important. And we've had some moments where we thought, Across this past season, they're not scoring enough goals. Mm. Uh, they're drawing too many matches. But we've always also seen them determined, <clears> even <throat> on the days when they weren't playing well, to pull out a result. And that is a hallmark of a very, very good squad. Yeah. 
It's something we've, we've had a couple of the players on recently and the, the game that gets talked about a lot was the, the Portsmouth 3-3 right at the start yeah. of the season. Yeah. Um, you know, coming back to draw 3-3 with nine men, it was almost like that was the, that if we could do it that night, then, you know, no problem for the rest of the season. Yeah. You know, being 2-0 down at home to Blackpool, it doesn't matter, we can get back into this game. So I think we sort of proved that night that we had that character and that belief and then it just, it just carried on in abundance, didn't it, for the rest of the season. I quite agree. And and um, I think we should also give credit, you know, to the work done by AD5, Ash. Yeah. Um, yeah Mark Robbins will, will tell you that, you know, in fact, he was asked in one of the press conferences, I think um, uh, it was um, Andy Turner from The Telegraph asked him, um, has AD5, Ash made you a better manager? And he said, yes, without question, yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Um, and I think the two of them working together, working in tandem. And, and I think what you need and what Mark Robbins has got in AD and indeed other members of his backroom squad, from what I hear, are people who are not afraid to turn around to him, even though he's the gaffer, even though he's the boss. And if they think he's wrong or they think there's something more likely, if they think there's something that he's pointing out that maybe he's not picked up on, then he'll listen to them. And they won't be told off about it. They won't be put down about it. They won't be demoted or anything of that sort because we've seen that happen in the past at this football club. I could tell you one or two stories about instances where the assistant has opened his mouth because he felt he had to yeah. and the man- and the net, you know, within a, within a few weeks the manager's got rid of him. Yeah. Uh, that, that's happened and it happens. it's happened elsewhere but th- that doesn't happen here. That doesn't happen at this club right now because Mark Robbins has built around him people who knows he, he knows he can trust and I think that's the key, you know, it's trust and respect in the backroom team and within the playing staff, trust and respect. They trust each other to do a job. They trust each other to give 100%, and they respect each other's position and contribution. Yeah, of course. And um, you mentioned there about that he's not he's not afraid to sort of listen to to them people, you know, to other people, backroom staff. And he's obviously not afraid to sort of make decisions as well. And we've obviously recently seen Zane Westbrook um, leave leave the club, and he's starting to build up that sort of um, you know team ready for the new season. In the Championship, Stuart, how difficult do you think the job is for Mark Robbins to to keep? the sky blues up and i know you've mentioned there that he really wants us to push forward of course we, we all do but yeah how do you, how difficult do you think that that will be the first priority of any team in any league is to make sure you're in the, at least in that league next season of um, course hopefully to go up to the next level if you can but but to at least be in the same league next season as a minimum requirement and and yes, you're quite right to put that question because that's obviously going to be the first challenge. And it is a tough league. I mm. mean, Mark himself said to us a couple of times, we were asking him about Tom Bayliss, yeah. who left the club and went to play for Preston and went to sign for Preston in the Championship, has not played much for them. And, and I said to him a couple of times, are you surprised to see that? But knowing how good Tom Bayliss was for us uh, in, a, in a lower division, are you surprised to see him not finding his place in the Preston first team? He said, no, not at all. It's a huge, huge leap. This was his own phrase, a huge leap from League One to the Championship. It's massive. And, and, and yes, you're quite right to raise the question because that's got to be for all the ambition, for all the hope and anticipation that we might do it in one leap or even two. Um, the, the, the first thing is to make sure we stay there and that we don't um, let ourselves down by slipping back down again because that's all too easy to do. There's some good teams in that division, some very good teams, uh, and you write them off at your peril. Um, we've got to fight hard and we've got to fight our corner and make sure that we, we are in there and punching our way at the end of the season, whether it's in the middle of the table or, as I believe we can do, actually, in in the top flight and going for at least a playoff place. I think we can do that. Yeah, brilliant. I'm, I'm sure our, our listeners will be really pleased to hear that. And what, what, Is that what you feel? I mean, what would you think would be a realistic target in terms of finishing league position for, for, the, for the Sky Blues? I would not be disappointed if we finished mid-table. Sure. I think realistically, we could make the playoffs. I really, really do. Simply for the reasons we just discussed. The, the way they've brought themselves together, the way Mark has, and for an 85, I should have brought the team through the, the lower leagues, up into the championship. Um, and and, 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 the, and the way the squad has been built. It's, it's also about recruitment, you know. And, yeah. and, and Mark will be the first one to... Um, to take his hat off and salute his recruitment department because they've been tremendous in lining up players for him to consider and yeah. make his mind up about. And they, 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 not, they haven't all worked, 
but most of them have been absolutely superb signings and have played their part in the squad. Um, and, and I think that it's going to be a season to remember one way or another. And I really do think that the playoffs are distinctly possible. Automatic would be sensational. Yeah. Be absolutely sensational. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a good thing. And, and one thing I'd also just put in your mind, you know, um, a model to follow in many ways, although I hope we don't yo-yo too much, but a model to follow is West Bromwich Albion, who have just won promotion again. Um, and they got this tag of being a yo-yo team. Nothing wrong with that, because when they go up, they get whatever it is, 100 million quid straight away in their pockets from Premier League revenues. At the moment, well, even though there's talk about parachute payments being abandoned, at the moment you'd still get a significant chunk of money when you're relegated. And what West Bromwich Albion have done, have said, thank you very much, put the money in the bank, we won't splash the cash on big-name signings that we can't really afford, we'll strengthen the squad, keep it going, and always be there or thereabouts to push for, to get back up again next season. And, and they've done that. And that's not a bad model to follow. And I think, <clears throat> I would hope, personally, obviously, I would love to see Coventry City promoted and make its way, like Sheffield United, like Wolverhampton Wanderers, into the top half of the Premier League table. That would be great. Yeah. Um, but being realistic, if you, to, to emulate West Brom would be no bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'd all, we'd all take that, wouldn't we? Um, just going back to you for a second, Stuart, you, you, um, you announced sort of a semi-retirement in, I think, last year, 2019. Um, has it been nice to have a bit more time on your hands and what have you been doing with that time? Yes, it has. It's been... It's been uh, I, 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 I got to a point... Uh, last year when uh, I realised that I'd done 50 years in this business. Yeah, and, um, a long time. It's a long time. <laughs> and and the last 10 years at Radio Northampton, um, which I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. It was a sort of a, a swan song I never thought I'd get in many ways. Um, and uh, I, I enjoyed working over there, uh, albeit Coventry City playing there was, was a bit of a weird thing for a time. But... Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed Northampton, and they gave me a lovely, lovely send-off when I, I decided I was going to go into semi-retirement. And since that time, um, to start with, I was doing some holiday relief for presenters over there, so I was going back over there occasionally. Same in Coventry with BBC CWR, uh, and, of course, also working on the football shows in Coventry. So I've, I've been kept quite busy in that respect, but I've also taken on the role of um, chair of Health Watch Coventry, um, hosting the breakfast show and other programs in Northampton over the years. I've interviewed lots of people about the NHS and the work it does. Um, and health watch is an organization relatively new still. It's about, um, if I'm right, I think it's about, um, maybe eight years old. Um, there are, there are health watches all over the country in different parts of the country. And there's one in Northampton, there's one in Coventry, there's one in, uh, in, in Warwickshire, one in Birmingham. Um, and the, the, the job is it's, I'm a volunteer and the people who serve, on Health Watch, are all volunteers. We have a small paid staff of about three or four people, um, but most of us are volunteers. And the idea is that we, through various surveys and, and other means, just get the, the mood of people, the, the public, about what the health service is doing. Is it doing a job properly? We also provide an avenue uh, or encourage people to, to follow an avenue for complaints if they've got them about the health service. And there's a way of doing that, but it's mainly about... Uh, is the health service doing a good job? If not, how could it do it better? So, and I found that really fascinating. I really mm. enjoyed that. I'm so I'm chair of health watching Coventry, um, and of course, since the <clears throat> coronavirus epidemic or pandemic has set in, um, a lot of the radio work I was doing has gone by the by. I've done some stuff with Clive Eakin from home on BBC CWR about uh, Coventry City. Yeah, a lot of the radio work has obviously stopped. Because I can't go into a studio, um, course, well, I, yeah. but I suppose, but, but I haven't been. I've been I, I, I can broadcast from home, but it's that they've they've got people at the radio stations who have been um, taken off their regular shows. They've got enough people anyway to to, to fill their schedules without me being involved. And um, and I've just become a granddad, as you said. So yeah. um, so life is. I, I find plenty to plenty to do. I've also been writing um, a, a book, and uh, maybe that'll see the light of day some it's, at oh, some brilliant. point. So. You know, um, I kept I'm keeping very busy, and um, and it's 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 just a weird time, isn't it? Because living through this this pandemic is is I, I compare it to like living through a real life um, sort of movie of of of, of horror almost, and yeah. uh, 
and, and you, you you just wonder what the heck is going to happen next. But um, we are where we are, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, hope hopefully at some point we'll be we'll all be back at the football, and yeah. you know things will feel a bit more normal. But yeah, Stuart, we'd love to chat with you all night about your career <laughs> and about Coventry City, but you know we will let you go. It's been it's been great to have you on the show this evening. Um, I'd just like to say on behalf of the thousands of Sky Blues fans, thanks very much for your contribution as a broadcaster and for your passionate commentary, punditry and brilliant phone-ins over the years. That's very kind, Tom. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for asking me to take part in your in your, uh, your programme and uh, your podcast. And I'm looking forward to listening to it back when you decide to put it out. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Stuart. And listeners, don't forget to check out our brand new website, which is skyblues-extra.co.uk where you can find all of our match previews, podcasts, and of course, our brand new range of merchandise. As usual, if you want to get involved in the conversation on our social media channels, just use the hashtag SkyBluesExtraPodcast. Thanks for listening to the Sky Blues Extra Podcast. days are great but there's nothing quite like playing at home the same goes for mcdonald's maximize your home ground advantage with mcdelivery order now on the mcdonald's app at participating restaurants 18 plus serving times delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonald's.com and there it is that's as good as it gets on this stage nissan townstar ev strikes again it's an unstoppable van unstoppable Look, just fantastic you can actually see the pro pilot technology in action effortless parallel parking it moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty and with a bench full of all-star van experts there's real strength in depth here that's all-star quality search nissan townstar ev and visit your local all-star van center to see for yourself Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver-assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.